from the Times of Northwest Indiana and nwi.com slash podcasts, you're listening to Byline. The podcast about the newspaper's most fascinating stories and the reporters who tell them. Gail Wilk, and this time Byline examines a serial killer that left Hammond shaken up by his murders. We'll talk with the investigator tasked with finding the answers. If you would have seen him the first time, you, you would think he's suspicious just by looking at him because he's he was different. He was different. Yeah. And we'll sit down with the public defender that gave his best to carry out his sworn duty. One of a kind. Um, never had one like, never had a client like him before or after. In this moment, it's a slightly warm but crisp Monday as I'm meeting with Sarah Reese, our Lake County Courts reporter, at the Lake County Public Defender's Office in Crown Point. Wait, so tell me, tell us a little bit, where, where are we right now, what are we seeing, or what are we going to Okay, so here we're at the Lake County Public Defender's Office, and we're going to talk to Tom Baines. He was the attorney for David Mouse. All right. So David Mouse reached a plea agreement. Um, and but before he could be shipped off to the Department of Correction, he committed suicide in the Lake County Jail All for right. killing three kids in 2003. The public defender's office is tasked with providing the best possible defense in court for those charged with felonies across the spectrum. As you walk in, there's framed posters outlining the fourth, fifth, sixth and Eighth Amendments included in the Bill of Rights, as well as the U.S. Supreme Court's precedent set in Gideon v. Wainwright. Tom was a prosecuting attorney for 13 years, and then switched over to, as some law enforcement agencies tease, the dark side. He's now the assistant chief public defender in the office. In general, not, not regarding this specific case, but in general, you keep reminding yourself, sometimes we're right. I mean, sometimes, and more importantly, we are right as defense attorneys far more often than the system will ever admit to, okay? If it weren't for us, the system would never admit to making any mistakes ever, okay? Uh, So having someone that occasionally forces the system to admit that they made a mistake in charging a person, punishing them too harshly, withholding evidence, whatever the case may be, we earn our keep by doing that, by keeping the system uh, more honest than it is otherwise inclined to be. And in all his years in the office, he finds David Moss to be the strangest, yet most interesting client he's had to help. I prosecuted serial killers. Uh, I prosecuted a lot of homicides. I defended a lot of homicides. Um, I, I've lost count long ago of how many cases I've handled. He was an interesting individual, but easily the most fascinating person I've encountered in 44 and a half years in the Lake County criminal justice system. There's more to come with Tom later on. So for now, we'll transition over to one of the folks that had to go up against him during Moss's trial. 
It, it was, uh, you gotta know Tom Baines is a good lawyer. This is former policeman Ron Johnson. He retired as a lieutenant in 2006 from Hammond's force after serving for 33 years. And uh, I've known him all my life, just about. I went to school with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a smart guy. You went to school with, like, grade school? Oh, yeah. Here in Hammond? In second grade. We were in mm-hmm. grade school together. He, he's a very intelligent guy. For Most, it wasn't his first time dealing with the courts in prison. Battery or oh, yeah, he's charged with battery. Yeah. For hurting people? He... he Stabbed somebody down in, uh, I can't remember where it was, in Arkansas or Texas, Texas, wherever he went to. Yeah, Yeah, he did down. He got time for that. He uh, hurt another boy up in Chicago. He's had quite a few incidents. It's just a a never-ending crime spree, you know. Then he went away for the 17 and a half years, and everything was quiet, but he was gone, you know. Then when he got out, he wasn't out of couple months he moved to Indiana and this happened you know. What Ron's referring to is the lengthy and troubled past that David Most went through. From past testimony and newspaper archives, Most describes how he was abandoned as a child by his mother. In 1963 his parents divorced when he was seven years old. His mother left him at a mental institution when he was nine. He left that place at 13 and was transferred to a boys home. He described himself as having no social skills and little way to receive any affection, as Tom Vaines describes it. There wasn't a lot of um, contact he had with the other children of a sexual nature. That began when he moved from there to the Ulix Children's Home, where he was from 67 to 70. Uh, His big memory from the mental hospital, Chicago State Hospital, was how devoid the kids were there of any affection from anybody. Once in a while, a staff member would give them a hug on the side or that, but by and large, there was no physical contact by the staff with the kids. When he got to the um, children's home, the boys were of the age where they began touching each other. And he described how they used to play with something called the knockout game, which was a, um, they would choke each other to the point where they would begin to pass out and then let them revive. And he perceived it as just an excuse to get touched. If you've ever seen the movie um, Shawshank Redemption, they talk about... uh, institutional man, the man who gets used um, to life behind the walls and can't adjust to life on the outside. Um, That was him, um, except he became an institutional man as a young boy. That was um, his situation. But he basically said that when he left, uh, I know he was quoted, or he wrote later about himself, that when he was released from the Chicago State Hospital at age 13, he should have been destroyed like a wild animal uh, because he said he had no ability to relate to other people. Life became more complicated after that. Most enlisted in the Army at 18 and was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany. In 1974, he was convicted of manslaughter and larceny in the murder of an American couple's 13-year-old son that were living in Germany. After serving four years at Fort Leavenworth, Moss moved to Chicago, 
He was tried for attempted murder after he said he stabbed a friend in 1979. Back out in 1981, he drowned 15-year-old Donald Jones in an Elgin quarry. He was arrested for also stabbing a boy in Texas and was sentenced to five years. Extradited back to Illinois, he was sentenced for the Jones murder. He finally was out of prison in 1999 and moved to Oak Park. It wasn't until a few years after the turn of the millennium that Moss and his issues resurfaced in 2003 in the basement of a Hammond home. While at work, Ron was a supervisor for another officer working on a missing child's case, 16-year-old James Regani. The boy's mother wanted to speak with Ron. Although not originally his case, he jumped on. The mother said James had been hanging out with someone named Crazy Dave. When I first met David, yeah, he, we met him in the backyard. He was sitting in the backyard on a, on a railroad tie and uh, smoking a cigarette and drinking a beer. And uh, this was after we talked to the mother and they told us about this guy named Crazy Dave. That's all they knew him by. That's what they called him. Crazy Dave. And uh, so we wanted to find out who Crazy Dave was. And they, so we talked to the kids that hung around with uh, the two boys. Mm-hmm. And they told us where he lived, so we went there and talked to him. He was uh, not nervous at all, very uh, cordial, you know, friendly. And uh, he took us inside the basement, showed us the whole basement, showed us his apartment, let us search through anything he wanted to search through. He did admit the boys came around, and he talked to them. He, uh, and they kept coming around because he said they, they didn't get attention at home, so they started hanging around him, you know. And he says, I... I didn't do anything wrong. He says they just come around. He'd were you suspicious of him, even though he was calm and friendly? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He's. If you would have seen him the first time, you you would think he's suspicious just by looking at him because he's he was different. He's different. He was different. Yeah. A couple others were also missing: 19-year-old Nicholas James and 13-year-old Michael Dennis. Supposedly, they had left letters behind saying they had chosen to run away from home. And I, uh, it took me a long time to uh, run down all the leads that I'd have to show you what David did here. But uh, David faked all this, made these kids think they were going on a trip, yeah. and uh, made them write uh, letters, like uh, goodbye letters to their parents. Yeah. And he, they, they wrote like three or four different places they were supposed to go. So you have to send all your information out to these different agencies to find out if. If anybody's there that matches these kids' description, you got to try to find them, you know. Oh, the letters got delivered to the families? N- oh, no, they, they left them when they... Okay. What they did, they left these uh, runaway letters. Yeah. They left them different parts of the house, you know, and they'd find one this week, find one tomorrow. Well, they found, like, four or five letters. And so you got to send letters to all these communities, like California, Texas, wherever they said they were going to run away. Okay. you got to try to see if they're there. Because they could be runaways, or we don't know what happened to them. I later found out what happened, but... Right. Here's Sarah reading a few of those letters. Um, the, reason I, the reason that I'm leaving, that I can't stand all the pressure, I'm on so good. Bye, Hammond, and hello, Texas. I love you. Yeah. Love, James. Yeah, James. And... Uh, it's, it's just a really weird note. Did, does it make, one? did it make sense to her? Well, you gotta read, he, they left like four or five. Yeah. And, uh, Mom, by the time you get this, I will 
already begun. I'm running away because I'm sick and tired of moving from place to place. I'm 13 years old. Don't worry about me. I'm taking the lake shore train to Chicago and I'll be back when I'm 18. Please don't call the cops. This is, that was Michael. This is Michael also. Different, another different letter. Mom, keep my stereo. Lee, goodbye. Alicia, keep my PlayStation. Mom, Lee, Alicia, I'm going to head what? Head for West, like California or Washington. Good luck with your trip to Tennessee. See, so you knew that, you know, when when they leave these, you got to at least try to find them. You know, you, or you, how can you prove that anything? If you just go after somebody and you, you don't prove they're missing, then how do, you, how do you prove it, you know? The other thing Ron found quite suspicious was something he found in the basement of the home Moss was renting space in. With Moss being a renter and the basement being a shared space with the home's other tenants, the police had permission from the owner to investigate. That's when we, I noticed the, the buildup of cement. And to me, it didn't look really out of place because a lot of people in North Hammond had those buildups. It's like, you know, 12 inches off the floor. So their washer and dryer wouldn't get water, you know. But the thing that struck me funny, it was about 15 feet away from the water hookup. You know, so it was all by itself over in the corner. And it didn't look right, but... At that time, we didn't know anything different, you know, so. So they investigated further on it and used radar to look at the cement. Part of the ground penetrating radar they That's used. How, so what did they need to use that for, that penetrating radar? We wanted to see if we could see anything in the ground, you know, that before we dug it up, see oh. if there's any re you got to have some reason to get probable cause to, to do what you're doing. So we wanted to see if there was something in there that, needed to be looked at, you know, and, and they found uh, an anomaly, you know, anomaly. something that's not supposed to be there. That's all they can tell you. They can't tell what it is, but it says something that shouldn't be there. Authorities would dig up the cement, and there they found the three boys' bodies, decaying from spending time underneath the cement and soaking in groundwater. Moss was arrested and taken into custody. He talked these kids into, uh, uh, he told them, he, he wants them to, to, now this is David's saying this. He told him he wanted to uh, make make these kids a lot of money. And he tried to entice them by saying that, you know, you take this car that I'm going to give you, you take it out west, you deliver some drugs for me. You, nobody will be able to tech, detect this, these drugs in these cars because I, I've got a foolproof way of covering the, the drugs up. You know, you can't, you won't get caught. So they thought they were going to make a lot of money, you know, come back and then be rich uh, in a few years and buy their parents a home and all this. He, he really screwed their mind up. Well, they didn't leave on a trip. They never left the house. So uh, I found out later in David's statement that uh, the day they were reported missing, he killed them that same night. So they were the same night. So. The time, all the time we we're investigating, they're already buried in the basement. I asked David, I said, David, tell me, because you always want to know what's going on. And I said, David, tell me one thing. He said, what's that? I said, how do you pick your boys or how do you pick your victims here? He says, I pick the boys by, I watch and see if nobody comes around, that's the ones I pick. If nobody comes looking for them, that's the ones I pick. What still perplexes Ron about the chain of events was the benevolence that Moss appeared to show, 
only to abruptly end it with a murder. But he, he, he's almost like he wants to be a father figure to these kids, but then he kills them. So how can you, how can you distinguish between him wanting to be a, a father image, which he apparently never had because this mixed up life, um, trying to be a father image to these kids, and then next thing you know, he kills them. And that's where I think the sex game comes in, because if it's just him trying to be a father figure, why does he have to kill him? And why can't he distinguish between the two and not kill him, you know? So do you think that he it's, it's more of a, he was just trying to entice them to come around him more by giving them money, buying them clothes, and taking them bowling and all this, playing a father figure, yeah. getting their confidence, and then taking advantage of them. Now, charged with the murders, Moss was questioned. But his defense contested its viability in the pretrial hearing. We're back with Tom Vaines to help explain. We took him to court on a suppression hearing, and I think we embarrassed him. Moss was brought in for questioning. They videotaped it. Okay. And on the videotape, you can hear, if you listen closely and if you're thorough, and we were thorough, you could hear right at the beginning of the tape that he said, I'll talk to you if I get a cigarette and get a lawyer. I want a lawyer. Well, under the law, the minute you request a lawyer, all questioning is supposed to stop. Now, whether the officers didn't hear that, whether they heard it and blew through it, they proceeded right to keep at him anyway. Um, if you listen to it, I don't think they heard it. I don't think they heard it, okay? Um, but if you listen to the tape, it's clear. I want, you know, and I'm not talking without a lawyer. I told you that. That's exactly what he says. I'm not talking without a lawyer, and I told you that. Moss's defense team also pointed to the fact that the judge that had issued the original search warrant also chose to go to the excavation scene, something seen as unconventional if the judge is expected to remain neutral about a criminal case. The team ended up settling out of court. Tom points out that even though Moss pled guilty, he very much took responsibility for his actions, ultimately wanting to receive the prosecution's original call for the death penalty. Moss's plea deal gave him a life sentence. The minute that we took a recess in the motion, we set it over for a future date for part two, and plea negotiations began as soon as that hearing was over. You would classify, you'd have to classify David Must as uh, a serial killer, too. Yeah. 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 Five, I, I know that five people he's responsible for. I know there was some suspicion of more. I don't think so. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. He had no reason to hold back. Okay. Uh, I mean, he, he was an individual who wanted to die. Yeah. Uh, more often than not. I mean, there were periods of time when we represented him where we could get him to back off in the short term on that, and he'd be begin thinking about life in prison, and et cetera, et cetera. But he would always revert to um, you know, a death wish. Um, so, I mean, he had no reason to hold back, and if he thought confessing to an additional homicide would get him closer to his stated goal of death, he would have done so. Once Moss was in prison, he kept in touch with Tom. So Tom would go visit him occasionally when requested. 
we had a routine going uh, where we would spend Sundays, not every Sunday, but periodically we'd go on Sundays and talk to him for two and three hours at a stretch. And uh, he got to be very comfortable talking to us. And uh, um, generally you learn something new. He, he had some some decent insights uh, uh, um, into his own failings. Mainly it was the, the complete lack of socialization. I mean, he just never fit in anywhere. Uh, he, remember him talking about uh, sitting at the beach after he got out of the Illinois prison and uh, um, seeing people his own age with families realizing I'll never have that and I'll never be able to relate to people like that. But at the same time realizing I'm much too old to talk to people younger than me, you know, far, far younger than me, and just realizing he was never ever going to be a fit in anywhere he ever went. It, what Part of what made it fascinating was the contrast between the uh, horrific violence he was capable of and the contrition he was also capable of. Contrition is not in the DNA of most serial killers. I mean, it's just the opposite of what you expect. That was the, the first thing that shocked us when we uh, first encountered him. We expected a hard-nosed, bittered uh, con. And we saw just the opposite. Here was a guy that wanted his punishment um, and wanted it uh, quickly. Yeah. Um, the contrition was genuine, I think, okay? Um, the problem was that it didn't last long enough to stem the homicidal impulses. Eventually, Moss got his death wish, ultimately committing suicide in 2006, only a month after his sentencing. I probably should have picked up on more signs of the how close he was to suicide at that point in time. But he had also been doing things like asking me for money so he could get started with at least a little bit of money in his commissary at uh, prison. And nobody who's, I mean, that, that's inconsistent with the suicide. And he was serious about requesting the money. He was polite about it. He didn't demand it or anything like that. But uh, um, no one who's you know, interested in committing suicide is worried about prison commissary. Okay. So I guess that fooled me, threw me off a little bit. So I didn't see when he came to that meeting with Mark and I and he gave me some things. Yes. Um, probably should have been a red flag should have gone up at that stage. They didn't. And uh, I was thinking that uh, I'm going to be seeing him in prison. I'll write to him. I'll go see him at some point in time. In the end, um, I paid to have him cremated and then... Um, I disposed of the ashes at, uh, several months later in a location I've never disclosed to anybody. My wife and my wife went with me, but beyond that, uh, nobody knows. Despite the heinous crimes that Moss committed, Tom and his work found the humanity in a broken person and looked at the shortcomings of a criminal justice process that neither helped Moss or his victims. David's case. <laughs> It was easy to see, to use that phrase, the making of a monster. It was easy to see 
what happened, what made him what he was. Couldn't answer all the questions, uh, but his story as to how he turned out, why, you know, the abandonment, the institutions, the snake pit mental hospital he had to live in, the uh, wild out of control boys home he spent three years in, that story needed to be told, okay, to get a perspective on um, this. And to highlight the fact that criminal justice institutions here could have stopped this and failed to do so. But by and large, he was uh, unfailingly polite uh, with us. Uh, when you do this work as a, uh, uh, either as a prosecutor, when you're a prosecutor, you focus on the horrific crime the person committed. When you defend, you don't whitewash it, but you don't focus on it. You focus on the person. He wrote me a, a very nice, right around the time um, And he wrote that letter to Ron Johnson. He also wrote to me, thanking me profusely for everything I had done. Um, I can't share it with you because it's still considered privilege, but it was a very nice letter. Got a uh, um, letter uh, that arrived a day or two after he died, too, that he had written just before his death. Uh, one of a kind. Um, Never had one like, never had a client like him before or after. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. You can find all of our episodes at nwi.com slash digital slash audio. Reporting for this episode came from Sarah Reese. We'd like to thank Tom Vaines and Ron Johnson for providing various comments for this story. If you have suggestions for an episode topic or want to share your thoughts, drop an email to kale.wilk at nwi.com. I'm Kale Wilk, and from the Times of Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening. See you next time.